to you 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 good evening good evening to you 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 good evening you 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 good evening won't you share with a friend or two good evening good evening to you you good evening good evening to you good evening good evening good evening and welcome 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 to another episode of Daring Dialogues via Black Table Talk, our Tuesday edition. I want to thank those of you who are joining us. Uh, Also thank those who will catch the replay. Thank you for the replay viewers as well. Thank you for going ahead and hitting the like and the share and the notification button to be notified of when we go live. Also want to let you know we have an IG page now that is That is Daring Dialogues on IG. So if you want to follow us there so you can be a part of the conversation that's happening outside of Tuesdays, that's happening on the other days of the week at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you can join us on that new IG page. Again, the IG is at Daring Dialogues, no spaces. So we're going to hop right in tonight. And if we're having any technical difficulties in terms of bringing people in for conversation, we will switch over to IG to pick up and have our part two. So I just want to give people a heads up for those of you who are coming in. But we're going to start with what we normally start with, and that is our read aloud. Tonight we are looking at the book entitled Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in School by Monique W. Morris. If you aren't familiar with her work, I highly recommend it. Um, She's dealing with several important issues in terms of how black girls are seen in public school. Um, As we've been reading, a lot of what she has been talking about can also be applied um, in some ways to what what black children in general are experiencing in schools. I was... um, taking a look at a Twitter conversation that was happening today about the impact of children being sent to schools that are predominantly white, where the child may be the only one or two uh, children in the whole school um, that has, you know, that, that is black. And people were sharing their stories out today about the impact that that situation had on them as a child. So it was very interesting to hear um, people express, you know, either the the mental damage that they experienced, the emotional issues they experienced as a result. Um, some of them talked about, yes, they got the academic opportunities, but there was so much soul work and identity damage that happened and went on that they are still trying to recover from that. So I thought it was a very good conversation. We are in chapter two of this book, 
and we are looking at the chapter title, A Blues for Black Girls When the Attitude is Enough. So right now we're talking about the attitude of black girls and how, you know, they're pretty much not really allowed to have an attitude or they're not allowed to express their emotions um, without it being categorized as something negative or something that shouldn't be happening or that it's disrespectful or they're being defiant. So we're going to continue um, reading. And we left off on page 64 for those of you who have this book. And then we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to be looking at stand your ground, standing their ground. Um, what rules like zero tolerance does in the school system, willful defiance, what does that actually mean, and how does surveillance play a part in what is happening to black girls in schools. Here we go. For Sheila, who was a graduating senior at a university in California at the time of our conversation, This was a confounding experience because she couldn't understand why someone like her, generally quiet and a good student, would be stereotyped into being a problem. Sheila went to a large public high school in an affluent community in Southern California where the percentage of black students was very low. She struggled to establish her own student identity even when it appeared that teachers had different expectations of her. She says, I was in AP European history my sophomore year, and during that time, my uncle passed away, and also with that, I was getting my contacts fitted. I had passed out and hit my head on the floor, so I was having migraines galore for about a good year, and they weren't able to actually figure out what was going on because my brain scan was normal and everything else was normal. They couldn't figure out why I was having these migraines. In that class particular, I wasn't doing all the notes at the same time that everyone was doing their notes, and she noticed. She would constantly get on me and ask, why don't you have your notes? Even though I had explained all of this to her, she wasn't very sincere about it. I wanted to talk to her about it like, hey, there was a death in the family, and I'm dealing with these things, but she would have none of it. I was like, why aren't you doing this? It was like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you keeping up in class? Meanwhile, I was going to school every day and I had really a good understanding of European history and it showed when I was in class and participating. She was always doing these little check-ins, but they felt more invasive. I noticed that she showed more preferential treatment toward my classmates. One week, a white student just didn't want to do her notes and the teacher was like, oh, that's okay. Well, that didn't happen with me. Why does she get to skip out on this and I don't? The first semester, I ended up getting a B and ended the second semester with an A. I remember the teacher coming up to me and saying, I didn't think you were going to finish. Like, no, this is really important to me. Before the end of the semester, the teacher suggested several times that Sheila take a less advanced course. Perhaps it was because of the initial interruptions, but to Sheila, it didn't feel that way. Even after I was turning in all my assignments and my test scores were really high, she continued to suggest it. That wasn't the problem. I was like, why do you keep suggesting this to me? I really didn't understand why she kept doing that. 
Sheila responded to her teacher's differential treatment by trying harder. But for some girls, the bias they experience is too upsetting for them to ignore. Some may have parents who have taught them the mantra of having to work twice as hard to get half as far. But for others, that burden is so fundamentally unequal, they refuse to play along. Instead, they find other ways to assert their dignity and to gain respect, even if those ways get them in trouble. In a society so shaped by race and gender, we all live with implicit biases that inform our ideas, stereotypes, and norms of black femininity. Our perceptions of difference can sometimes fuel unconscious bias that informs our subconscious reaction to individuals based upon involuntary ideas about race, gender, sexuality, or other aspects of identity. This is important because, well, educators are people. It's unreasonable to think that they are not impacted by the barrage of negative images associated with black female identity in the popular consciousness. Certain individual interactions offer evidence of bias, as is the case with many of the stories offered by the girls and young women in this book. But we also see it at a structural level. The greater a school's proportion of students of color, the higher the likelihood that punitive, exclusionary discipline will be used in response to student behaviors deemed disruptive and problematic. Now I'm gonna come back to that statement. It's unlikely that administrators of these schools are intentionally of the mind to punish youth of color more than their white counterparts, but punitive responses to student behaviors are especially prevalent in schools where principals and other school leaders believe that frequent punishment helps to improve behavior. These leaders are disproportionately found in schools with high numbers of students of color. Their presence is not an accident. It's that kind of that whole, you know, idea of keeping them in line. Now, as an educator myself who has worked in several various kinds of schools, I've worked in a predominantly white school that was um, a private white school where we had legislators and governor's kids there. Um, And they had some behavior modification things, but they were not very... Um, They were not on the punitive side. They were more on the um, behavior modification side. I've also worked in a school where there were some, you know, it was predominantly black, but it was an at-risk school with all girls. And some of the things were very punitive, but they also on the flip side had a reward system. Um, And then I have recently worked at a predominantly black public school where the majority of the staff, I would say about 85% of the staff is black or African-American. And the the principal and the assistant principals are all black, African-American. And they do not use a punitive model. And when I first got there, um, I was very impressed by this because as this book talks about, usually when you find a school that has a predominantly um, African-American children or staff or both, usually the disciplinary actions are very, very punitive. It's really like zero tolerance and all of that. Um, And so to see 
in a public school setting where this was not happening was pretty amazing. Um, and you could, and I could actually see the humanity with which the students were treated and how that affected the students' behavior, how that affected their mindset about themselves, how that, how that affected their, their esteem. And so there wasn't a whole lot of um, fighting as is, you know, kind of stereotype, oh, you know, these kids are wild or they're out of control or you must see fights every day all the time. That actually really wasn't the case. And I thought it was a very powerful example of what can happen when you stop using these super punitive models because you think black kids are, are in need of more discipline measures than anybody else. So let me go to the second section of this book. Standing their ground. Zero tolerance, willful defiance, and surveillance. For two decades, the nation has been enthralled in a punitive whirlwind that has reshaped how educators respond to students, how administrators understand and interpret adolescent misbehavior, meaning behavior that is normal for their age, and how institutions respond to the learning needs of children in high poverty schools. For their part, women and girls experience multiple ways of knowing. They gather information not only from what people, adults, and peers tell them, but also from experiences, from symbols, from metaphors that are woven into the tapestry of their environment. Black girls notice the verbal and nonverbal cues that signal what they are supposed to do and be in life, and they are astute enough to realize when the learning environment is producing something other than its stated goal of educating children. What is often being produced creates a climate so hostile that it pushes girls out of school and so toxic that it is giving us all an attitude. Zero tolerance policies are rules and practices that emerge from the broken windows policing theory, which was first developed by criminologists George Kelling and James Wilson. It suggests that small criminal acts are indicative of more severe negative behavior that may later manifest. So it's this whole idea of Let's quote unquote nip it in the bud before it gets worse. In the 1990s, law enforcement, particularly police forces in many of the nation's large urban centers, i.e., black neighborhoods, turned toward arresting individuals for minor infractions or incidences of misbehavior. Now, of course, we still see this happening in certain communities, like the recent event that happened with the sister um, that was given a $385 ticket because she was outside in her neighborhood talking loud on the phone, and they gave her a ticket calling her a nuisance to her own neighborhood. So these kinds of things are still happening, okay? The idea is that by not tolerating any infractions, they are mitigating future, possibly worse offenses. This quote-unquote preventative tough love has ushered in a climate and culture of harsh punishment in communities that are already strained by economic and social exclusion. 
1994, at the height of this hyper-punitive approach to criminal justice policy and rhetoric in the United States, Clinton, yep, Clinton, not Bush, not Bush one or two, Clinton, signed into law the Gun-Free Schools Act, GFSA, which required schools to expel for at least one year any student who brought a weapon to campus. Now, you guys know, if you've been in a public school, if you have read your handbook, if you're a parent, please, let me advise you, please, read the handbook. These days, they're putting handbooks on PDFs. They're going over a few points with the parents. And then they're saying, oh, you're responsible for downloading the PDF and reading it. Please read the entire handbook. And please go to the section that talks about discipline and please go to the section that talks about what is a weapon and please go to the section that talks about the procedures and the appeals and the consequences please do that so it requires schools to expel for at least one year any student who brought a weapon to campus for some for some schools If you have a pair of scissors outside of the proper environment, meaning a classroom or an art class, it's considered a weapon. Um, as As a creative and someone who taught in the classroom, there are certain supplies that we had in the classroom that if you took them out of the classroom without permission or you dropped it in your book bag and you were caught with it outside of the classroom, it was considered a weapon. Um, there are some people, schools, who have policies about bringing, eating utensils from home. They can be considered a weapon. So again, read those policies so you know what might be considered a weapon uh, where you are. The policy was in response to a series of school shootings more than 50 across the country, and now we're seeing school shootings happen every other day, that together garnered the attention of the American people as well as national policymakers. Then on April 20th, 1999, two boys opened fire on the campus of Columbine High School in Colorado, killing 12 students and one teacher and injuring more than 20 other students before committing suicide. Columbine spurred a heightened awareness of gun violence on school campuses and precipitated instrumenting these instruments of surveillance that were said to provide the highest degree of quote-unquote safety for students. While structural inequalities preceded the incident in Columbine, zero-tolerance policies that were first intended to protect students from guns and weapons have greatly expanded to include, listen to the list, automatic suspension for students who bring drugs onto school campuses, fighting with one another on campus or within a certain radius of the school, or if you are perceived as threatening other students or teachers with physical violence. Notice that little word in there, perceived, because perceived gives people leeway in room to profile you as a child okay 
marked by the wide latitude of their interpretation, these policies vary across schools and districts, but remain in many ways a justification for overzealous, punitive reactions to student misbehavior. Now again, we're seeing some of this overzealousness now as we're going through graduation season, which thankfully is almost over. There are a couple of school districts that are still around the country that are still in school and closing out their school year, which probably should end by the end of June. But parents who have students who are in these last leg, they're in their last couple of weeks of school, they're closing out, they're taking exams, etc. Um, they're cleaning out their locker, they're getting ready for graduation, walking across the stage, whether it's virtual or limited ceremony, whatever. We are still seeing these overzealous attempts at punishing children. There was just one recently where I think the boy was a high school student, but he was a rapper, and he was he was handing out money at graduation. I think they arrested him, escorted him off the property, and they refused to give him his diploma. Um, another student, I think this was a Mexican student, who draped the flag across his um, graduation gown. When he went up, they shook his hand. They gave him his, you know, his uh, folder for the certificate. And when he got to receive his certificate, they denied it. There was another incident in Louisiana. Um, I don't remember all of the details of it, but I think it was, you know, having to do with the sound and the loudness of people celebrating. And they denied the student his diploma. So it's not just in the classroom that we're still seeing this overzealousness of trying to punish children. It's all the way through down to graduation ceremony. So if your child is getting ready to walk across the stage, please make sure you go over whatever stipulations those people are telling you Whatever they've told your child, make sure you have a copy of it about what they shouldn't be doing at the ceremony because you do not want them to go through the traumatizing event of walking across the stage and someone not handing you your, your diploma because they decided to do some punitive foolishness because that's what I call it. The ones mentioned here are common guidelines in places where zero tolerance is enforced. Nationwide, the number of girls of any racial and ethnic affiliation who experienced one or more out-of-school suspensions decreased between 2000 and 2009 from 871 plus thousand to 849 plus thousand. Still, the racial disparities remain. While black girls are nearly 16% of girls enrolled in school, a figure that has declined only slightly in the last 10 years, their rate of discipline has remained elevated. In 2000, black girls were 34% of girls experiencing an out-of-school suspension. In 2006, they represented 43% of out-of-school suspensions. By 2009, black girls without a disability were 52% of all girls with multiple out-of-school suspensions. How do you make up only 16% of the public school population, but 52% of black girls are experiencing multiple, 
not just one time, multiple out-of-school suspension. And we know that affects their ability to move forward, their ability to learn, their ability to retain the information because they're missing out on learning. In the 2011-2012 school year, there were 18 states with out-of-school suspension rates for black girls higher than the national average of 12%. Across southern states, black girls are particularly vulnerable to the use of exclusionary discipline, representing 24% of girls in the region, but 75% of girls receiving an out-of-school suspension. Just sit with that. In 10 Southern states, black girls were the most suspended among all students. An unusual and noteworthy problem. Over the course of this decade, there was an important shift in the public and policy interpretation of how to secure school campuses, and it has had a negative impact on black girls. In the 2009-2010 school year, black girls without a disability were 31% of girls referred to law enforcement, 43% of girls with school-based arrests. In the 2011-2012 school year, they remained 31% of girls referred to law enforcement and were 34% of school-related arrests. Since 2000, the rate at which they are harshly disciplined has remained disproportionately high. Nationwide, black girls are 38% of girls arrested in schools, a rate that is four times higher than their white counterparts. They are 43% of girls referred to law enforcement, which is a rate two and a half times greater than white girls. In charter schools, they are approximately 29% of the girls enrolled, but 35% of the girls referred to law enforcement. 52% of girls placed in restraints, 45% of girls arrested on campus. In Wisconsin, which produced the highest suspension rate for black girls in 2011 and 2012, no black girls were referred to law enforcement directly. However, digging a little deeper into the numbers reveals the situation. During that time, the truancy rate for the Milwaukee Public Schools, the metropolitan area with the highest incidence of African-American poverty in the United States, was 81%. In 2013, Black students were 56% of students enrolled in the public schools and 83% of students considered habitually truant. (sighs) 83% of your students that are black are considered habitually truant, meaning they don't show up to school. So how are y'all getting state funding if the kids are not showing up? In Madison, where more than 74% of black children live in poverty, where black females are almost six times more likely to be unemployed than their white counterparts, and where youth are more than nine times more likely to be habitually truant, the arrest rate for black youth is six times that of white youth. In the 20 years that followed the implementation 
of the gun safety. Black girls have become the fastest growing population to experience school suspension, expulsion, establishing them as clear targets of punitive school discipline. The National Women's Law Center and NAACP Legal Defense Fund released Unlocking Opportunity for African American Girls, a call to action for educational equity. A 2014 report that explored not only the disparity in school discipline, but also the extent to which other obstacles undermine black girls' ability to fully engage as learners in schools. According to that report, quote, decades after legal battles were fought to dismantle legalized racial segregation in education, African-American students are still disproportionately enrolled in schools without access to quality resources, without access to credentialed teachers, That's a whole other issue, and I can actually tell you why that's so. Without access to rigorous course offerings and without access to extracurricular activities. In Black Girls Matter, pushed out, over-policed, and under-protected, a report by the African American Policy Forum, it was noted that Black girls are expelled from New York schools at 53 times the rate for white girls and resort to acting out when their counseling needs are ignored. Why? In her book, Sugar in the Raw, Rebecca Carroll shared the narratives of black girls, including some who foreshadowed how zero tolerance policies would treat them in the years to come. 14-year-old Letitia from Portland, Oregon said, quote, a lot of people say I got an attitude, but I don't really see it. The only reason people be saying I have attitude is because I stand my own ground. In an era when stand your ground laws are associated with judgments of justifiable homicide in the shooting deaths of black men and boys, standing one's ground now has other connotations. But for too many black girls in schools, it has become associated with being perceived as willfully defiant, a nebulous term that harks back to how others view their disposition or so-called attitude. Willful defiance is used subjectively and arbitrarily to categorize student misbehavior. This can include anything from having a verbal altercation with a teacher to refusing to remove a hat in school or complete an assignment. It is essentially a formalized way for a school to reprimand students for failing to follow orders. As an undefined catch-all category for student misbehavior, it has been scrutinized for how often it has been used to suspend children of color. In 2014, when California discovered that 43% of its suspensions were for willful defiance, the state became the nation's first to limit suspensions that were tied to this offense. However, this category remains a fixture in many other states in educational systems nationwide. At the time the GFSA was being implemented, little research centered adolescent girls in discussions about school safety. In fact, there were very few narratives that explored their experience in schools that were experiencing higher levels of violence. 
zero tolerance discipline policies, specifically the controversial category of willful defiance, have become routine and a way to punish and marginalize black girls in learning spaces when they directly confront adults or indirectly complicate the teacher's ability to manage the classroom, not necessarily actions that pose a threat to the physical safety of anyone on campus. Zero tolerance policies ignited a consciousness and school discipline ethos that supported the removal of students from the classroom if their actions were perceived as defiant in any way. In many cases, this quashed student voice and limited the ability of teachers and administrators to use discretion and respond to the unique events that led to a conflict. Consequently, the new culture also thwarts their ability to develop responses that might heal or repair the relationship between those actually involved in the conflict, the teacher and the student. Zero tolerance results in choices and decisions based on fear and punishment and not personal accountability. To describe this nuanced impact of policies and the greater school culture of punishment on black girls, it is instructive to examine one of the most notorious and complicated school districts in the nation, which we will take a look at next time because no way am I jumping into this right now. <laughs> and that is Chicago Public Schools. So I know lots of Chicago Public School teachers, so I might have to ask a, f- a couple of them to come on and share next week about their own experiences in the Chicago public school system. My experience has been in the Florida public school system and private school system, uh, Virginia public school system, uh, Virginia early child development system, and Maryland public school system. So I do have um, a couple of states that I have teaching experience in and I've been able to sort of see some of the same patterns going across. I want to share this one uh, story because as we're talking about this, I think one thing that the writer kind of goes into is how these policies sort of take away the ability for the teacher and the student to actually solve or resolve a conflict. And I will definitely say I've had some of the girls that this book is talking about. Like I've had the students that when they come into a space, they are already labeled defiant. They are already labeled as, you know, troublesome or a troublemaker. Someone has already, you know, been through their file and, you know, tried to come to me as an educator and say, hey, I want to give you a heads up on this student you know, they may be, you know, they have a history of doing X, Y, and Z. You may want to watch out for these things, right? So I had, and I have had several girls who, if I were just going by zero tolerance policy, I could have kicked them out of my space quite easily and been justified in doing it according to what the school policy says. But again, as the writer is bringing up, that does not address the fact that you may kick, you know, you may have boot that student out of your space, but they'll be back next week. So what are you going to do then? You have to, um, as an educator and as an adult, 
in the situation, you have to actually take some personal accountability and responsibility for what is happening in your space. You have to be willing to um, sit down with that student and ask them, what is it that's happening in your life? How can I make this better for you? What is it about this class or this course or this subject matter or my style of teaching and explanation? What is it about that that is driving you to act in the way that you're acting? Is there something happening at home that's driving your behavior? Because I have to be able to, as an as a educator, I have to be able to teach everybody in this, in this space, not just you. And guess what? That kind of conversation takes time. <laughs> it's the kind of time that as an educator, you either are willing to make or you're not willing to make. And a part of it is that's really what it boils down to. Because I've been in a situation where I've only had 12 students in a class. And I've been also in a situation where I've had almost 40 students in a class. And obviously, that's a huge difference in terms of your attention that you have and your ability to be able to, you know, give everybody your attention at one time based on the time that you have in a space. So you've got to be willing to look at what are some solutions? What are some alternatives? Am I willing to go the extra mile? Am I willing to spend, you know, an hour of my, maybe my planning time and pulling that one student that has taken over the attention of my entire class? Am I willing to do that? (laughs) Or am I just gonna keep writing slips of discipline until they finally, you know, get suspended and out of door suspension. Again, this goes back to who is in the classroom. Like this like this writer talks about, there is some individual things that are happening. When she talks about how um, educators are people too, some of them have some serious biases that are not checked. We've seen this recently in the national news with teachers, you know, putting their foot on students' necks and taking pictures of it and sending it to their parents and saying, oh, I thought that was funny. No, ma'am, was not funny, was super unprofessional, was probably traumatic to the child. They won't figure out what you were doing until a little bit later. But again, as the adult in the situation, right, you have to address your personal biases. You have to decide how much time do I want to invest in this student beyond, you know, the 90 minutes for some teachers, 45 minutes for other teachers, you have to decide that. Is this worth it for me to go the extra mile and step? And unfortunately, um, we have more teachers right now who are burnt out, more teachers right now who are stressed out. (laughs) Um, Is that an excuse for what's happening? It's not an excuse. It's just, it is what it is. Um, And so when you look at the environment that some of the teachers are in, when you look at lack of support from administration, when you look at some of the classroom space and environment that teachers are working in, um, I did a whole photographic series back in like 2019, just to kind of show people 
some of the working conditions that teachers were working in. All of that affects a teacher's ability to give students their full selves in the classroom. Because I can teach and I can have curriculum, but if there are other factors at play that are distracting me from giving that, that child or giving that group of students my entire attention, they're going to feel it and they're going to know. Um, so I think, too, part of this also has to do with um, the condition of some of these schools. You know, I've had students say, hey, you know, why should I come to school? Why should I give my all when y'all not giving y'all all? Why should I come to this space when there's no drinking water in some of these schools, believe it or not? The pipes are rusted. Um, schools have had to close. I just uh, got some notices of, of some schools on yesterday and today that had to shut down for half a day and go to virtual learning today because the AC in the entire school is broken. So it's also those factors as well that play a role in student response. So everybody is on edge in one way or another. And um, though she brought up some, she brought up some good points here. I just want to say that because sometimes we think it's just a child's attitude, but environment plays into that. Um, students can tell when the environment looks like crap. And if the environment looks like crap, you can't convince children that you care about them. You can't convince them that you want to provide them the best and most quality education when their environment says otherwise. When they don't have, again, basic things like AC, (laughs) water that doesn't have lead in it, um, seats in the classroom. Yeah, we got schools that don't have enough seats in the classroom for the students or all of the seats are cracked and busted so they can't sit down stuff like that so you got to look at the environment that we're putting children in while we're expecting them to bring their best or their a game so it's not only just what could be happening at home but it's also what could be happening in that that actual physical school environment that can be bringing on the greater attitude okay so just want to say that um lady barbara i see you so let's see if we can bring you in for discussion let's see if we can bring you on good evening evening. i'm good how are you having a migraine headache and she was struggling and she was doing well so you riding her 
to me that that's like she's excelling, but you trying to hinder that in her from moving forward. And the other things when you talk about the conditions of the school mm-hmm. and teaching not having proper credentials. And and, and yeah, I want to get to that. Thank you for bringing that book back up. So there is this whole thing about oh my god we're ha- we're going to have a teacher shortage let me tell you why we're gonna have a teacher shortage number one lack of support for teachers during the entire pandemic that's absolutely number one reason why come august in some states and september and others they're going to be scrambling to find teachers they're not telling people this right now but the number of teachers that are resigning and not returning next year yes I know because I'm an educator that number is skyrocketing so now school districts are scrambling right now because they're trying to figure out um, a way to do virtual learning for some of the teachers that will not come be coming back into spaces or cannot come back into spaces because of their health. Yes. There are some that are, they're like, no, I'm not willing to risk my health. I'm not willing to risk, um, you know, people who may be living with me, elderly people who may be living with me. I'm not willing to risk their health by the number of people that I'm exposing myself to every day, whose life we do not know whether or not they've been vaccinated or not and all of this. So they're they're having to do a whole different restructuring for next year. And I don't think that that is actually being communicated to people. Um, the other piece, when you talk about qualified teachers, for many states, it is cheaper, hear me, it is cheaper to utilize substitute teachers who they don't have to pay a salary to, who they don't have to offer benefits to. It is cheaper for counties to use substitute teachers that don't have credentials. So please hear me very carefully when I say this because they're on on the public side, they're saying, oh, we can't find enough credential teachers. That's not true. They're not hiring them. There's a difference. It's not that they can't find them. They're not hiring them as teachers. They will hire credential teachers as substitute teachers because they don't have to pay the benefits and they don't have to pay the salary. They can hire them on an hourly rate. So they're saving in those in the benefit package that they would have given that same person who has credentials. Because I know people who have been working as substitute teachers trying to get in to get hired for years. And they will not hire them even though they have the credentials, they just keep working them as substitutes. So that is the backside of what is happening that people do not see. So there's not a shortage of teachers and there's not a shortage of credential teachers. There is a shortage of counties willing to pay credential teachers and give them benefits. That's what there's a shortage of. 
So, in other words, that's just like if you what it's like when I was in between jobs in New York, and I would go, I, I registered like with a temporary agency. So they would send me wherever. If I I went to NBC for like six or seven months or so like that because a woman was on maternity leave. So you only have to pay me, but you pay the agency more than you pay. that they get, The agency gets more, but you get paid a certain amount for you stay for different periods of time. So you don't have to pay me any medical right. through the temporary. I only worked at one temporary agency that did offer coverage, but they rarely ever do. So that's a part. You know, and that's really sad because you're saying we'll hire you, we'll have you tip here. Mm-hmm. But but when you do that, are you going to get the quality of that that teacher could offer? Not having to deal with the fact that I'm only here substituting. I don't have proper coverage, and and for you yourself or your family, so you're not going to get if you think in terms of that. A teacher is not going to give to me. I don't. I'm not going to. They're all, and they're not going to get into like you know this altercations or really trying to work because this is just something temporarily for me. So there. There's. I mean, there's a certain level of investment. So like, I can't speak for every teacher, but I know myself when I subbed. Um, there was only a certain amount of investment you could make because even going into a situation like that, the students didn't really take you seriously. They're just like, oh, you're just just here for a day. I don't really have to, I don't even have to give my all as a student. Yeah, and that's true because it's like, I remember you shared something with us and, um, when you went back into teaching and you said that you were told when the children wasn't so open because their fear was how long are you going to stay? Yep. They they had a fear of being abandoned by teachers Mm -hmm. because so that is that that plays a part too. Well, how long are you going to be here? Yep. You know, if I get used to you, and I do the work and I'm doing everything. How long are you going to be here? So, and in, in a way, that's a mind thing too, that they don't, I think that the, the system has not realized that it is a good thing to bring in teachers that are there and that's going to show up and do the best that they can as educators. Because every educator, you know, some do it for like you have some will say you know what i got mine you got to get yours but every teacher does not think like that there is teachers who will work with you after school do whatever they have to do to see but every but when you take and put none african americans in in a school that's all black children they're not because you don't know. And here's what you said. Was All so I'm saying, I got stories on that. I got stories. I could do a whole book on the white supremacy that works through teachers who don't care about black kids teaching at black schools. Yeah, only for the paycheck. I'm here, I got mine, and I'm out. That, but it, it's a system, you know, and it's so sad because I've heard of black teachers who can't 
can't get high permanently. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a, it is happening. It is happening. They are being passed over and they're being kept in substitute status. There'll be, there are some counties that will hire you and they will say, we'll just come in as a substitute first and we'll see what we can do. You know, let, let that be an entry point for your teaching. And some people get stuck there. They can never get an actual teaching job because they get stuck just substituting. And so this is something that's happening in the, in the background that a lot of people are not talking about. But I'm going to talk about it because I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Don't sit up here and tell people that you all can't find no teachers because that is not it. The teaching pool is now the substitute teacher pool. Those teachers have degrees. (laughs) They got certifications. They're just trying to get a county to actually hire them and give them a salary with benefits. And a lot of these counties are like, oh, we good. We good doing what we're doing right now. And the, in the meanwhile, the students are the ones who are suffering. That's true. Because you are refusing to actually staff a permanent teacher certified in the area or subject matter that those children need. Exactly. So that's where, um, you know, some of the issue has come in. Final thoughts, but, Lady Barbara? But thank you for sharing. Well, it just makes my heart kind of sad because when you read some of these stories that where young people are really trying, all they're just asking for is, you know, I can't ask a question. Or if I say it a certain way, you know, mm-hmm. it's like they're looking, they've already, it's a mindset to me that they already have, well, this is what this is. And so this is how I'm going to just go along and everybody's and, just pushing along. And yeah. here's the thing. There are some students that, like you said, when they feel like everyone in their life has abandoned them, especially in the education side, there are some students who are not coming back from that assessment. And no matter what you do and no matter what you say, it is a brick wall. And then there are other students going back to the to the to the young lady I had to have a sit down with. She basically said, "Miss Charles, when I come to your class, I'm hungry." Oh. Wow. This lunch that they given us at the school is not enough. And so by the time I get to your class, I might come in the front door and sneak out the back door because I'm going searching for snacks. <laughs> so one of the things you can help me with, Miss Charles, is please bring us bring us some snacks. And so what I started doing, because I was like, listen, I'm not just going to be, you know, I, 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 I'm on a teacher's salary here, right? I'm like, I can't just be you know, going broke, going broke buying snacks. So I'm like, you guys are going to have to, we're going to have to work something out. So you got to put forth some effort. I will provide the snacks. (laughs) You put forth some effort. effort. And then as they continue to work and as they continue to excel, then we started having whole class parties. Now, again, That was my way of meeting a physical need. Of course, I talked to my administrators to say, hey, is this okay? 
And they were like, yeah, this is okay, you know, but make sure you're not bringing anything in that can affect somebody with allergies. So it was like certain things, like you can't bring anything that has peanuts in it. You can't do anything with peanuts because a lot of the students had peanut allergies and stuff like that. So again, it just took communication. And then that student became the, the, the same student that was like leading the truancy from my class was the same student that everybody listened to that became the leader in rounding people up to get to Miss Charles's class on time. Get your work done so we can have our snack. <laughs> okay? So this was this was middle school. This is not elementary school, okay? This is this is eighth graders going into ninth grade. Let's get there. Let's get our work done. Let's get the reward. So you have to give children incentives. Yes. I don't true. care what age that is. Incentives matter. Yeah. Let me uh, do this one, one second here, Lady Barbara. If you have been listening by Anchor FM, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Our time is up. So if you want to join us, you can always join us on the Black Table Talk page tonight. And we will see you next time. Take care and God bless.